acceptance. Welcome to the Lion's Pen, the official podcast of the Heirs Project, Art and Revival Speaks. The information, opinions, and resources expressed on the Lion's Pen podcast and blog or the Heirs Project website are not a substitute for professional treatment. You should always contact your medical or mental health professional for advice and treatment. If you are experiencing a mental health emergency, please call 911. All right, so welcome back to the latest edition of The Lion's Pen, the official podcast for the Heirs Project. I'd like to introduce today's guest, social psychologist and author, Dr. Stephanie Wright, who also happens to be my sister. Welcome, Stephanie. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Well, before we jump into some of the questions, Stephanie, do you want to give us a little bit of introduction into who you are? Um, sure. So I am, I am a social psychologist. I am a professor of social psychology at Georgia Gwinnett College in Georgia. I also try and do a bit of consulting. I work in the legal area, so that can be fun at times. Um, I am a writer. I historically have done mostly fiction and poetry. However, a couple of years ago, I published a, um, a small case studies textbook with Sage Publishing, and I'm now working on development of a large textbook with them and a digital product. So I'm pretty excited about that. I have three fabulous daughters and one fabulous son-in-law. So my oldest daughter and her husband live in Savannah, Georgia. My, um, my second daughter is a rising senior at Georgia Southern University. And my youngest daughter is, although technically a high school senior, she's done with high school. So she's starting college this fall um, locally just to have a year of college under her belt. And then we'll see what she has to do. That's about it. Not much else to me. Don't believe her when she says that's about all to her because there's so much more and you're going to discover just the very surface of that today. So let's just jump in. You know, this the Heirs Project is, it's not just an organization or a platform it's, and it's not a brand new movement. It's art is not new in the recovery world, in the mental health world, but we want to keep the footing that we have and continue moving the needle forward with this. Um, so the first question that I typically ask most folks is, why is intersectional expressive arts important to you personally? And this could be as a woman, a mother, an educator, an author, or any other one of the many hats that you wear? Right. I think that this is such an important question, actually. And I um, I would love to, to hear all the answers that your guests have given, because for me, um, I think that, you know, there are there are two things that happen. And one of them is itself intersectional. So, you know, the first one is that we know just in terms of literature, but then I also know personally that no matter what form of art you engage in, that art itself has such healing power. And, and that's great, like do your art. And I, you know, my, uh, my, my 21 year old is a visual artist and sometimes she just does her art and that's wonderful. But then also when you share what you have done, um, and you know, that's a very visceral thing to, to do, but when you share what you have done, it becomes even more healing for you. And so that is good. 
But also when you give that gift of sharing your art with other people, you also at the same time are giving the gift to them of this knowledge that, oh, maybe if I do something creative, then that will help me too, even without having those words. And so that's the other intersectional part. And I just think that um, it, art itself is just a great healer. And you said it gives way to, to the power of expression. And sometimes art steps in when we don't have the words or the, the, a clear way to articulate it. Sometimes things come out, especially with me, like word salad. And the ability to say, well, you may not completely understand this or it might not resonate with you, but this visual or audible or felt depiction of me right now, this is where I am, even if I can't say it. Exactly. Um, there's a school in Massachusetts that serves teenage moms and helps them get, um, to finish high school if they had to drop out of high school in order to have babies. And you know, it's a nonprofit organization and you know, nonprofit funding is so hard to achieve anyway. Um, one of the classes that these young women take in the school is an art class. And they learn to, you know, they learn to draw, they learn to paint, they learn to take photographs, they learn you know, all different types of art, visual art in the class. And then in the spring of every year, they host like a gallery showing. And those who want to can sell their art, um, but they also like charge a nominal fee to come in and, and view the art. And that's their big fundraiser every year. And it's become quite well known in this region to you know to go and view this art because some of it is absolutely fabulous but all of it is so healing for these young women and I think that's another great example of how you both do this thing for yourself but then also are you know, useful to a broader community and being able to share that. What is the name of that school? Um, it used to be called the Care Center, and I think it still is. Okay. We'll make sure and link that in the show notes for anyone who's interested, both in the school and the support that they offer, but also the showing and the possible purchase of art. I don't know that people who haven't tried to do this thing that we call art are fully aware of just how much of a person goes into any artistic endeavor. How does creative expression offer both entertainment value, but also a deeper message to the masses? And you kind of touched on that a little bit, but maybe we can go a little further. Sure, I think, and um, yeah, I think that I get, I get turned around in this when I start to talk to people about it. So bear with me if I don't make a lot of sense. I think that some art is sort of very obviously intended commercially and commercial art does have or should have high entertainment value. That does not mean that even commercial art can't have a deeper story to tell. And I think often it does. And, and so I think that commercial art can be deep if the artist chooses for it to be, although it doesn't have to be. However, um, I think that art that begins its life as a deeper narrative can also then be taken by a broader community and be made very accessible just because of its nature. And so you can have kind of both routes to you know, entertainment value and deep narrative. You can start as one and end up as the other. And, and I think that if you start with entertainment value and end up with this deeper value that that is not accidental. 
However, I think you can start with a deeper narrative and kind of accidentally end up with entertainment value, if that makes sense. It does. And it's just one more piece of evidence that in life, in recovery, in just about any process, most things don't occur in a linear nature. And one thing can influence another in different directions. It doesn't have to be point A to point B to point C. I like the idea of the accidental. Absolutely. I think a lot of things in life end up that way that we try and ascribe meaning to that maybe just isn't there. For the discussion on commercial art and entertainment value, but also a deeper story, because we do live in the digital or technology age, sometimes it can be hard to separate the story of the art or the story of the artist from all of the noise, from all of the social media, the opinions, the expectations and labels and everything else that come along with being accessible 24 seven. I could not agree more. And I do believe we, we often end up talking about tech in these podcasts. And I am so grateful that we do live in the technology age, but there is still a give and take. And human beings uh, historically do not adapt to the technology as quickly as the technology grows. So those of us living right now in the technology age are still learning to adapt to it and delineate between the outside noise and what comes from within. I think that's a really good point. I do. I think that's a really good point. Even though we are the ones who create the technology, I think that that comes out of such a small bubble that the rest of us have to catch up. Absolutely. And, and sometimes there's a sense of urgency of having to catch up in our lifetime, whatever that looks like. And we can easily forget that it's not just about our experience with something, but lay, laying the foundation for our children or future generations to also be able to adapt. Yep. I think that's absolutely correct. It does matter. And I would argue, not with you, but just in general, that, um, you know, we've come so far, I think, from where we should be in, in our culture today that I think that it should matter more if we're doing it just for us. And yet I think we've gotten to a point where it matters less, which is you know, why I see students saying, um, you know, how can I get an A instead of how can I do better? Mm. We'll touch a little bit further on the learning environment later in the interview, but that is such a question for the times is, do we need to put as much weight on academic performance? And, and that's, I don't know that there's a right or wrong answer to that. I just think that it's a great conversation to be having. And as the mother of an artist, as the mother of a musician who had no desire to be, you know, top of the class when it, when it comes to academics and felt some pretty severe pressure when it came to that. I am a wholehearted supporter of encouraging the whole person and not just the societal expected norms. Right. Well, I am too. I think that there are, um, you know, there are a number of ways to approach expectation, but I think if it doesn't start within, then there's no point in having a conversation about without. Absolutely. And it's, it's easy for me to say that I feel like there's an imbalance because we, we do live in the Fairfax County public school system, which last <laughs> year was ranked 11th in the nation. And so there is, there is definitely a pressure to excel in very specific ways here. But at the same time, we also have a vast amount of funding and support for the arts here as well. So um, we do still yeah. enjoy that privilege. And that is a benefit of being in a stronger school district in the nation where in so many areas that does not exist whatsoever. Right. 
I know that there are a lot of four letter words out there that are not positive ones, but one four letter word oh. is hope. And that is the yeah. underpinning of recovery in general. So what does hope look like for you? What is the definition? How does it show up? I think that um, I, I struggle with like how to articulate this, but for me, you know, hope is, I guess hope is just essential. And, and that's what it comes down to. Like in terms of um, like well-being, I guess, hope is like, air for your physical well-being like you can't live physically without air and you can't live mentally and spiritually without hope and and so that's how i view hope once you've once you've kind of exhausted your reserves of hope then you know you're you're going to go to a really dark place and so you know you want to try really hard not to do that. Although I think that it's also pretty nifty that life kind of gives you lots of opportunities to bank hope if you're looking for that in your life. Like it's hard to overlook that. Um, you know, we, we can kind of store it up for a rainy day and and that is is pretty handy. That's a handy tool that Mother Nature gives us. But for me, like you, you, if you think about the word hopeless, it's that's a dark word. It's it's shrouded in mist and cold. And you know, I think that if you are an individual who has truly reached a place of hopelessness, then yeah, then, then somebody in your life has work to do, <laughs> needs to hold out a hand and you need to grab hold of that hand because that's just such, that's such an alone place to be. That's, I guess that's what I would say about hope. The common theme that most folks are saying when we talk about the idea of hope is the lack of hope can very easily end up in the giving up. And then if you add real tangible mental health conditions into the mix, then you often, people often end up living in the, the liminal space between not wanting to give up, but maybe their psychosis is telling them to give up or telling them they should give up or telling them that they're evil. Um, and then you have outside sources. I just talked today at work about core beliefs and cognitive distortion. And we have these core beliefs that we've developed either through childhood or through trauma that are just filters. And they're not fact, but they feel like fact in our bones and in our muscles and our, in our heart. And sometimes it can take I like the way you phrased it. You said have a bank of hope or be banking hope for the rougher times. I think personally, this is not a uh, in any way clinically backed, but I think that without hope, core beliefs can't be changed. You have to have the hope that what embedded itself into your life, into your bones, into your memory doesn't have to be true. Well, I think you. I think you're right. I think you at least have to have the belief that it might not be true or that if it was true, you can change it. Like you, that, that it's not fixed. Exactly. It, it's and, not permanent. Yeah. I mean, core beliefs can, you know, can be any facet of you, but normally it all boils down to, you know, how do we, how, how trustworthy do we find other you know, intimate others and how trustworthy do we find ourselves with others? And uh, that's really what it comes down to. It's such a, I mean, we, we could talk at length on even just the core beliefs. And one way to tie the art back into that, one way that we're able to start acknowledging and gaining insight into the core beliefs and then expressing them and changing them 
is through art because it has been a proven modality to give someone a voice when they don't have the words. And that is one reason why um, art therapy has been such a powerful force for many years and especially with children, but now in the adult recovery world as well is, hey, you don't have to tell me what happened. You don't have to repeat your story over and over again ad nauseum re-triggering yourself. Why don't you just take some color and some materials and let that out in a way that makes sense to you? It doesn't need to make sense to me or anyone else as long as it makes sense to you. Right, well, it's my story. Exactly. And that's, uh, you know, because we're accessible technology, digital 24-7, so often people feel as if they have the right to access others and their stories. And um, I know someone who actually phrased it really well, and I repeat this often, do not give someone else license to your story. Don't give that license away. Don't hand over the keys. Because if you do, you have no control over where that story goes. That's right. Particularly to somebody that hasn't earned it. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, this is the perfect moment to, we're going to derail this conversation now. <laughs> because I think that this is the perfect moment if you're going to talk about artistic expression and talk about, you know, not just giving away your story, but also um, you're recognizing early trauma and abuse and how that impacts our later stability. I don't think we could have a better example right now than what's going on with Simone Biles. I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> right, so here is a person who has chosen to do something that is both mentally and physically healthy, both for herself and you know, for the sport as a whole, has shared what she feels comfortable sharing, is under no obligation to share anything else, and is being vilified in the press for it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And people feel as if because she's in the public eye, they're granted free access to her. So why, just because someone is in the public eye, why should they lose their right to some degree of privacy? Exactly. And in, for every single person that chooses to share their trauma, their addiction, their mental illness, in any part of their recovery, that's their decision to shut it down whenever they want to. I am very interested to see how this continues to play out over the coming days and weeks and months because, and I'm not saying anything no one else hasn't thought of already, but how unfathomable it must be to be staring down the possibility of a medal and walk away from it. Right. Or, you know, or life-altering injury. Like to have the presence of mind to say, okay, <laughs> you know, I'm, I am, I am worth more than the medal. But I was watching the women's triathlon final a few days ago, earlier this week, and uh, Flora Duffy won the gold. And it was quite right. emotional to watch her throughout the process, but also just watch her cross the finish line. And she has alluded to or, or said, that some of her previous performances were not what she thought they could be because she was suffering from an eating disorder. So to come back from something like that to win gold, um, that's, that's huge. And the mental hurdles that she had to cross just to get back into this competitive arena are unfathomable. Um, Part of my recovery story is eating disorder and I still battle every day. I can't imagine what it feels like to be an elite athlete and have to battle knowing that your body needs to stay in a certain kind of physical condition, uh, that your body needs a certain number of calories a day in consumption to counteract your activity and to fuel you and to, to mentally wrestle with the number of calories you have to eat, to know that you are literally 
in the skittiest of outfits on the world stage being broadcast internationally. The things you have to, to surmount in order to get there, unfathomable to me. Good for her. Yeah, me too. And there's just, there's, I mean, it, it feels so trite to say that, but good for her. Yeah, I could not, I could not agree more. There's at least one person that's going to be listening saying, I thought this was about art. Moving your body <laughs> is creative expression. It is art. It is art. Yep. Your body is art. The way your body works is art. And it deserves to be treated as such. Um, and I realize I'm the pot calling the kettle black here with that, but it's something that's part of my, my recovery too. <laughs> Let's just go a little bit lighter. What are you curious or passionate about right now? Yeah. The easy part of this is like what I'm curious about, I guess, because I have been struggling my whole life with not living for tomorrow. So, you know, for the people who listen to your podcast who may not know, um, you know, our dad died 18 years ago. Mm -hmm. And wow, it's still hard to say that, but okay. Our dad died 18 years ago. And um, like even on the, you know, the, the program from his memorial service, you, um, we, you know, we had printed, it's the journey, not the destination, because that was something that he frequently said. Particularly, I think, because both of us were bad about not bad that's a, you should never say you're bad but we had a bad habit of saying things like you know when I turn 16 when I blah 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 when I blah 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 and he's like just slow down like don't wish your life away and and I have always done that like I've always said when this thing happens when this other thing happens when I make associate professor, now when I make full professor, you know, whatever. And so I want to do better about living in the moment. And that's such a hard thing for me. I think it's hard for a lot of people, but I know it's hard for me. And so, you know, that's kind of a thing I'm curious about, I guess, is, is figuring out what is the right way for me to do that. So there is that. I, I do want to, after I make full professor, I, I do want to spend about a year maybe in, um, in Afghanistan working with girls and women on, on their issues, primarily girls' education. But, you know, if I can get involved with a women's organization too, that would be great. So, yeah, that's, that's my great and abiding passion. Let's remind listeners that you are a college professor and a published right. author in fiction, nonfiction, and academia, and you are still admitting to the fact that you struggle. Absolutely, for <laughs> sure. I, every, I know no one that doesn't. Um, we all struggle, and you know, our struggles may look different, but I, I know none of my colleagues who don't. And, you know, at the risk of beating a dead horse, you know, particularly my female colleagues, but still all of my colleagues, I know no one who isn't struggling in some way or another. And not to celebrate that and not to glorify it, simply to say it's very easy to look at people with any type of privilege and assume that everything is wonderful for them. And at times it is, but at times it's not. And that's, that, that in no way means we should not still acknowledge the privilege we have and utilize that Correct. platform. It simply Correct. means that privilege does not exempt anyone from mental illness, from cancer, from the loss of a loved one, from struggling right. with the daily. It's privilege doesn't stop that. Privilege just gives us easier access to the resources we need to manage that. I agree. You know, the thing about it is, and I'm actually getting ready to teach community psychology class in the fall that deals with a lot of these issues. 
is, um, I mean, you're right about it being more about access to services. The problem is that in general, the people who lack access to services are people of color and they are people of color because they are lower SES. And so, you know, it's not even, it's not even that they're people of color because low SES white people are in the same boat. It's just that poverty is the great equalizer, right? Mm -hmm. So when you've got poor white people, they tend to be in the same boat. Our problem is that in this culture, poverty disproportionately affects people of color. And so it really doesn't matter, like what is the antecedent cause? The, you know, the reality in America is that it is people of color who lack access to resources. No matter what started it, that's the end result. And that's what we have to fix. And, you know, you can't get anyone to actually talk about that because they want to talk about other things that make it sound a little bit prettier. A little more palatable. Yep. This makes a good segue into myths relating to mental wellness, creativity, or both that you would like to address because it seems like this aligns closely with what we've been talking about. It does. Um, you know, one thing that I have always tried to impress upon my students is the intersectional nature of, of these issues. And it was really hard for me to think about this question because you use the term mental wellness and I understand the positive nature of that term, but to be able to talk about the rest of it was really hard <laughs> using that term but you know um when we when we see things in psychology when we see things like substance use or substance addiction um and we see things like homelessness or job instability when we see people who have um prior deployment experience from the military we tend to see these things clustered together. So while anyone who's taken an undergraduate class in psychology probably knows that one, one illness, you know, like depression or anxiety or whatever is, um, is likely to go hand in hand with some substance use. Yeah, everybody knows that. And we don't we don't put these pieces together to form a coherent picture. And I think that if we could, then we would start to be able to you know, look at people who are transient differently, look at people who have addiction differently, look at people who are um, you know, not well mentally differently. And you know, for me, that's a huge piece of what's going on in America is that we try and it's like whack-a-mole, right? Like you're trying, to, you're trying to deal with addiction and you're trying to deal with homelessness and you're trying to deal with veterans needs and, and you're trying to deal with them all individually and you cannot because they are so interconnected and and for me, that is the big one. Like if we could actually get everybody on the same page with that, I think we could really improve a lot of lives. Whack-a-mole is a good illustration for it because almost everything is comorbid with something else. Very rarely, it happens, but very rarely does someone's home status mental health status, substance use status happen in a vacuum and solely on its own. It happens, but it's not the norm. And so to look into all the different pieces and see how they fit is really important. And that's 
this is not related to creative expression, but that is one reason why I so much love working in the world of psychosocial rehabilitation, because it looks at the person and their place in the community. And, and how do we support that individual's skills and communication and ability to integrate a little bit deeper? Right. And that's, I mean, there's, you know, there's a million question marks around that because it's individual is the operative word. Um, but it's, it is so very important that we see what else surrounds the thing we're looking at. What are the resources that support you and the people you support when it comes to healing creative expression? Um, okay, this was, uh, this is actually interesting to think about. And I realize that I don't avail myself of as many resources as I probably could. However, I did just sitting here um, a few minutes ago, think of another that I should put here, not for myself, but just in general. So I would always recommend the writings of Jamie Pennebaker. So Dr. Pennebaker is at the University of He's either at the University of North Texas or the University of Texas at Austin. And I can't remember which one, I think North Texas. And he did his work also in social psychology at Duke. And um, he works principally with clinical folks, although his work is social in nature. And he has done you know, a career's worth of work looking at how journaling is good for us physically and mentally, like how it improves the quality of our lives. And he started by looking at cancer patients and, um, and their prognosis, like, and then their, so their original prognosis and then their actual um, longevity and remission history. And he found that people who journaled in a particular way actually lived longer and had better remission histories than those who did not. And you know, and that gave him the courage to keep going and looking at other things. And so, you know, he basically calls all of his work you know, the healing power of emotions. And and he's right. He's just got this solid foundation of you know, here's how you should express yourself. And, um, and although he focuses on writing, it doesn't have to be writing. Like all expression is good. And so I would definitely recommend Jamie Pennebaker. But then the other thing, there's a program in Philadelphia that has worked, it originally worked as kind of a community college, but then it expanded its offerings to work with um, folks who were coming out of addiction, out of homelessness, and that sort of thing to provide them with marketable skills so that they could get jobs. It, it was strictly for men in the beginning, but it's now co-educational. It's a wonderful program, and I can get you all of that information not that you can send people to Philadelphia, but it's not Philadelphia. I don't know why I said that. It's Pittsburgh. Um, but he actually has sort of a blueprint for what he did. And it's so exciting because it has worked. And it was, you know, community-based. It was come here and we will help you do more than, um, do more than, you know, hope that you'll get a job. They really provided marketable skills and it was, it's a wonderful program. The beautiful thing about his program is that he really focused on kind of expressive skills. Like he has a, a culinary program and a horticulture program and programs like that where people who are coming out of peer recovery are able to then take you know the pieces of themselves and put it into marketable skills is this william strickland the manchester yes. okay uh the, isn't it well and it's simple in that 
solutions to problems are empower people and give them the tools to grow. It's not simple to carry out because of the way our society is, but he had a vision of, hey, we just need to help people find their strengths and their passions and build on that and give them an avenue from the education arena into the working world. Right. What is your favorite creative or artistic experience or memory? I, you know, you would think that it would be, oh, when I had my first book published or, oh, when I got my first academic publication, but it's really not. I, I used to tell everybody this was when I was in the first grade, but I, you don't have to do this, but I have to mark how old I was by the houses that we lived in <laughs> because we found a lot when I was little. But I used to say it was first grade, but when I think about like putting the poster together, I think I was probably in the second grade and I won poetry contest. So either first or second grade. And I was so excited about that little poetry contest. And my poem that won was, I, I remember that I had to trace Mickey and Minnie Mouse on my poster. And my poem was, love is good, love is nice, love is even important to mice. <laughs> Which I dare say is still a pretty good concept. I agree. And what you know, since we're traveling down the theme of things that can be simplistic, that's about as simplistic as it comes. And it's very sweet and it's very true. It is true. I love that. This one I know is important to you and I both, and it's a growing conversation that needs to continue happening. In education, also in recovery settings, in different, in different settings where learning and growth are happening, often budgets are thin and the first thing to go is the arts. Why do you think, as an educator, a mom, and an artist, why do you think arts are a priority in learning settings? Uh, such a good question. And it's such a good question in multiple contexts. I, I think that everybody should be answering this question. I'll answer it as a mom first, because that one's easy. So we've got lots of talent, lots of artistic talent in our family. And, you know, I just think that we, as you have mentioned already, you know, we, we come with a lot of privilege. Um, yeah, I was, I, I never asked to play an instrument, but, you know, you grew up with a piano in the house and um, my girls have grown up with instruments. Your boys have grown up with instruments. And, and so they are the lucky ones, but, but not all children are who, who would be so good you know, and would change the world. How many Picassos and Dollies and, you know, Beethoven's and Brahms are out there that we would never know if it weren't for public instruction in the arts. Um, you know, and people will say as a justification for trimming the budget, people will say, oh, well, if somebody really wants to blah, blah, blah. And, and that's not true because you have to practice to become a master. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have access to equipment or you don't have access to instruments, then you cannot practice. It may be true that you don't need a teacher you know, Zelda's classical guitar teacher told me after about six months of instruction, I can't teach her anymore. Like, she's already learned everything I can teach her. It's now just practice. And which I appreciated his honesty, instead of continuing to take my money. Exactly uh, right. <laughs> yeah, right. You. But, you know, not everybody necessarily has to have a teacher but darn, you have to have the materials mm -hmm. to practice. And if you don't have access to those, 
then you cannot become a master. And, you know, we look at even impoverished schools have basketball courts. Even impoverished schools have soccer fields and baseball diamonds. And, you know, they have old but working computers. Every kid can get something that they might show a talent for at even the most impoverished school, but not the arts that that is not funded. There's not gonna be a piano in that school. There's not gonna be paint. There's not gonna be, you know, Bristol paper. And, and so you're really saying, you are truly saying that that talent does not matter. Only this other talent matters. And, and I think that for a number of reasons, that's tragic. Um, just for the individual child, I, I think that's tragic. And, and then, you know, also we have always had art. There, there has always been art. As long as we have been vaguely human away, <laughs> there has been art, you know, cave drawings cave paintings and scratchings and dirt and whatever, we've always had art. And, and to say that we don't need that is to deny all of what came before to make us who we are. And that's just grossly idiotic. And yeah, I just, you know, it's the humanities that teach us how to think logically, that part of that is art. Like how you don't get from point A to point B without art. Critical thinking is not just a science. No, and in fact, it's not, I mean, I am a scientist and I tell my students that part of my job is to teach them how to think critically. And that is true, that's true. However, it's much more true that the grounding of that, that reason comes from the humanities. You know, STEM teaches you how to do wonderful things like put rockets in space. But the humanities teach you why you wanna do that. And that's, that's exactly where I was going as you were saying this, because your oldest daughter, Carson, is an educator, and specifically, she's a STEM educator. And the, the worlds of the arts and the worlds of STEM, they do not have to exist on opposite poles. They go together. They go hand in hand. And I really love the way you put it. The, the STEM is the what happens with the humanities is, well, why did you want it to happen? And why right. you, and why now? I mean, why do you think that, you know, somebody technologically once upon a time created a Victrola? They did it because somebody else made a beautiful piece of music and they wanted to be able to play that over and over and over again. Wow. I had not thought about it like that. And I think that's important, especially if we're talking about the world of recovery, because when someone is in recovery, there is a lot of information that comes to that person if they're involved in organized programs, such as psychosocial rehabilitation or, you know, therapeutic services. And that person that's in recovery then has the task to kind of wade through all of the information that they've been given, find a way for it to make sense to them, and then turn around and apply it to their own life. And that is not solely science. It is not just, like you said, it's not you just go from point A to point B. The, the, the being able to turn around and apply it to one's own life, that's the hard piece. And that's the piece where learning that that's the, that's the piece that humanities is supposed to give you. And it's, I mean, it's all that. Uh, I did find the quote I'll share before we move on to some of these last few. This is from 
Friar Greg Boyle, who authored the book Tattoos on the Heart, and also Barking to the Choir. Um, both of those are wonderful reads. Here is what we seek, a compassion that can stand in awe at what people have to carry, rather than stand in judgment about how they carry it. It does. It, it really does. I want to go back to what your suggestions are for making the world a better place. Well, I think that um, whenever I'm asked this question, I always have the same answer. It, it seems to be a simple one, but somehow we don't do it. And that is, I just would like to see everybody be nice. Yeah. Like, that's it. If, if we could all just be nice, I think we would get a long way. This is the signature question for the podcast. And it <laughs> is so much fun because everyone's answers are completely different. And it's a little glimpse into who you are as a person. So you are crafting your own recipe for personal revival. What are your essential ingredients? This was such a hard question to think <laughs> about. Um, I mean, it really was because I was like, does she want like food? Or didn't, didn't you help me create this question? <laughs> Probably. I think you did. Um, so, you know, I think for me, the, the things that always, that always are good beginnings for success in any endeavor are to have ample time where I don't feel like I'm rushed because I always feel like I'm rushed. So I would start with time and then also quiet because I get very frustrated with lots of noise. Um, I feel like noise equals fast pace to me. And that may not actually be accurate, but it's how it feels to me. And that's all that matters. So, you know, I would, I would begin with both noise and quiet, but, um, not complete quiet because I would also want like, you know, a small group of people who were like my people there. Um, that would include you. And, and not, not like gossipy mean stuff either, like jokes and open a bottle of wine or 10. And that's probably not helpful thinking about recovery from addiction. Um, opened some Coke that I don't drink and laughter, like I need laughter. There were so many things I wanted to put on this list, like food that I realized I don't eat anymore since I'm vegan. So those did not get put on here and they did feel essential too, but <laughs> I didn't come there. Um, I said wind and rain, or I think I said wind or rain, but yeah, I like a good summer storm. So we'll pretend it's summer and then I'm getting a good summer storm with the windows open. Bach on vinyl, which believe it or not, I listen to most days when I'm at home working. So we'll just pretend it's most days when I'm at home working. I like to work old school. So maybe a legal pad, pencil and eraser, or a ballpoint pen is fine. I don't mind scratching things out. Um, you asked the question about hope earlier. I think hope would be a good thing to bring to my personal revival. You talked about, you know, this need to believe that we can change things. That is hope. Hope is belief that things can change. So it seems right to have hope there for personal revival, coffee for sure. This sounds so weird, but Rome has a little baby labyrinth, and I love that place. And so I started thinking, well, it might be nice to have a labyrinth, too. I know that's kind of pie in the sky, but if it could be anything, I would also have a labyrinth. That's probably all I have to have there. Just to clarify, when Stephanie says Rome, she means Rome, Georgia. <laughs> oh, Oh, that's right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Who are three people that have been influential in supporting you? 
who has been team Steph without fail? Well, I, I would like to just lump my daughters all together because I would not say they've ever been supportive all at the same time. In rotation, they are supportive. Um, so we'll call them one. And then I would say that, you know, you are unceasingly supportive. And as much as it galls me to admit it, our mother is too. <laughs> so I'm joking. Of course it does not. You know, I would be, I would be both um, erroneous and also completely ungrateful if she were not on this list. So um, yeah, I, I have friends who are continuously supportive, but you know, I haven't had them all my life. And so I, I, would, I would have to go with the five of you. Referring back to earlier when Stephanie was mentioning how our dad passed away 18 years ago, our mother has never been anything but a continued solid rock. She is a pillar in her community. People depend on her. Um, she, she is always there, no matter what anyone needs, whenever, however. She is insanely opinionated, which is amazing because a lot of people wanna bite their tongue and be politically correct. And she would rather say how she feels, which I really respect and we, we would not be the women we are today without her. For sure. This is a question I asked you a few weeks ago, uh, just in passing, uh, but it's now in the podcast. You're headed off on a road trip. What three songs are at the top of your playlist? <laughs> I don't even know if these are the three that I gave you before. Um, are they? Two of the I... three are. Two of the three are. The Bruce Springsteen is not. Correct. Um, okay, so definitely Come On Eileen and definitely Little Red Corvette because I, I could never ever choose between the two as to which is, you know, my favorite song anyway. This time I, I would say The Rising, it just happened to be on my mind, um, Springsteen did and that's a great album. He's a fantastic musician. Oh, Walk the Line was the other one. Oh, Walk the Line, right. Which is a Darn. classic, classic in its own right. Because I also love Africa. When, and true music lovers, to narrow down to three songs, especially ones you'd listen to in the car when you're typically listening to music anyway. That's all, I mean, I don't know that I could do it. No one's turned it around and asked me. Well, <laughs> what gonna... would be your three? <laughs> uh, definitely She by Green Day, because I feel like it it's, uh, epitomizes me pretty well. Boys of Summer, I mean, Don Henley, no explanation needed there. <laughs> Oh, and then the third would have to be a Jimmy Buffett song, but I'm not sure which one. Oh, Jolly Mon, Jolly Mon Sing by Jimmy Buffett. The tale of the, the island man that sings and how pirates overtake his ship and a dolphin saves him. Darn, now I want to add a pirate looks at 40. Why didn't you just say 30 instead so of three? So here's the caveat. Since we're asking you back to do the Pennebaker talk, you can do this question again and add three more. Okay. What is an assumption people often make about you that really is not true? I don't know. I think most of the time assumptions about me are pretty true. I know my students um, often say that I'm intimidating and I think that's a ridiculous thing to say about me. Um, also, you know, people who don't know me, if they meet me, will sometimes say that, you know, that I'm cold or dismissive, but that's not true. I'm just shy. So, or socially awkward or both, depending on the situation. So, 
I think both of those are pretty good um, responses. I'm I'm not cold. I'm not dismissive. I'm not intimidating. So yeah, that's pretty much it. <laughs> if if you could have one superpower, what would it be? Um. I think that I would say, and this sounds a little weird, but let me explain because it's not a, what I would consider like a traditional superpower. Maybe there's a better word for it. I would say like resilience or maybe endurance is a better word, like sort of like energizer bunny kind of thing so that I could just like, I wouldn't need a lot of sleep or a lot of rest or something like that. So I could just keep doing what needs to be done. Like if, you know, if I'm needed over here, I can go over here and do that. Or if somebody needs me to do this over here, I can go and do that or whatever. Like, you know, the, the restrictions of the body just wouldn't really apply. Correct me if I'm wrong that you would like more time to be fully you and enjoy more things. Right, right. And, and particularly those things that, um, you know, that make me feel like I'm useful. Yes, purpose, purpose, purpose is huge. Yeah. I, I think in recovery and in art, purpose does not rank too much further down than hope. Because if we don't feel like we have a purpose, again, it's easy to give up. Go find it. Go find it. And that's something I think you and I both have experienced throughout our lifetime is, I don't necessarily wanna say reinventing ourselves, but the consistent cycle of uncovering and discovering different parts of ourselves that we want to investigate further. I think that's a great way to put it. Yeah. You know, when I say, I'm not trying to be simple. When I say, I think it would make the world a better place if we were nice or, um, you know, that I really do want to be of use and I'm not cold or <laughs> intimidate, like, I am, I'm, I'm genuine when I say these things. Like this is a person sitting here kind of, you know, making a good portion of myself vulnerable for your audience. And I'm sure your other um, guests do that too. But I think that would be the piece that I would say I want them to understand about me specifically. I think that's a great way to continue clarifying what you started with before, because it can sound simple, but underneath the surface, it's not as simplistic as it sounds. And you are a really nice person. <laughs> Thank you. I very, think so. So are you. Well, we do know that you are a very multifaceted individual being a professor, a writer, an activist. Where are some of the places we can find you virtually? So my, my kind of professional face is at um, www. Stephanie, I don't know, stephaniewrightphd.com. And then my more, my softer side, the, the softer side of me is currently at writerly, so W-R-I-G-H-T, erly.net all you know my twitter my facebook my instagram every other place online uh, is is either at or hashtag writerly so i'm writerly everywhere except for com and we will make sure that all of the websites and social handles are linked in the show notes that's about it i think that's awesome. This was so much fun. It was. And I hope that you'll come back for 
a pen and baker talk at some point. Um, I will absolutely come back for a pen and baker talk. That'd be lots of fun. Find out more by visiting our website at theairsproject.org. That's T-H-E-A-I-R-S-P-R-O-J-E-C-T dot O-R-G. Again, this is Samantha Simons, founder of the Airs Project. Thank you for joining me today on The Lion's Pen, where we highlight the joy and impact of creative expression that helps shape and support us on our own individual journeys through the peer's lens of lived experience. music for this podcast was created by Jared Simons Music, jsimonsmusic.com.